The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Welcome to Dietary Requirements, the spin-offs food podcast where we eat and drink delicious things and talk about them too. Ko Simon Day Toko Ingawa and I am your host. I'm joined today, as always, by my friends, uh, spin-offs food editor Alice Neville. Kia ora. And food boss Sophie Gilmore. Kia ora, Simon. Before we get started, a shout out to our sponsors. The spin-offs food section wouldn't be here without our wonderful friends at Freedom Farms. Freedom Farms believes that everyone who eats meat has a responsibility to know how that animal has been farmed. They're dedicated to providing you with the best pork, free-range chicken and eggs. So you should buy their bacon, their eggs and their chicken and ask for your supermarket to stock it. But today, our focus is drinks. And because it's Wednesday, we're going to get on the piss. (laughs) Woohoo! Yay! And we'll be drinking some of the things that are less familiar to us, as well as one that we know very, very well. And to take us on that journey, we're joined by my favourite sommelier, Meg Abbott-Walker. <laughs> I don't actually know any other sommeliers. You're at perfect, the top perfect. of the list. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. You're my favourite, and I know lots of them. <laughs> if so you've sad. ever been convinced to try something a little bit out there in Auckland, it's probably because you're being served by Meg. She's worked at lots of different places around the city and around the country or just overseas as well? Uh, I did. I did work in Wellington when I was first in the industry, but then I spent uh, seven years in Melbourne, which is where the kind of predominant part of my early career, I suppose you'd say, was. Six years back in back in Auckland now. How do you think we compare to Melbourne in terms of a scene? Because it's getting so good, but still not quite there. I think what we have is is super high quality. Um, I think that the fact is we're just a, we're a smaller population, um, which just means maybe diversity is a little bit less. Um, but I think there's a lot of amazing people in the industry who are putting a lot of effort and and work in. Um, our food is of super high quality, um, and our beverage as well. I really think so. Yeah, we punch above our weight. And we're definitely starting to expand our horizons on what we're willing to. To try yeah, I was going to say, I think that's the difference. It's much more usual for people in Melbourne, Sydney, hospitality scene to A, try things that are um, outside of the huge, but also I think there's it's, it's a profession a lot more there. The industry of working professionals like sommeliers are, you know, everywhere and um, 
it's a it's a real career option. So that's the difference. We just need a little bit more of that here. Yeah, New Zealand's always been a bit behind on seeing hospital as an actual career, right? But it is, guys, I promise. I know. Yeah, it really is. Um, I think it's something that I, I found a lot when I was younger. Um, maybe it was because I was in less um, sort of management-type roles, but um, but in sort of recent years, um, I think a lot more people understand why we might choose to do this. And I think once people consider it a career, they get greater expertise, they're able to explain different types of drinks, different types of crazy food that are showing up, and it allows the um, customers to open their minds as well, which is, you know, the role of people like you, Meg. And your skills and expertise are actually verified on a little bit of paper, which is very cool. A uh, certificate from, a diploma, excuse me, from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, is that right? Yes, it is, yeah. What does that mean? So essentially, um, it's an educational body that's based in the UK. Um, There are kind of two paths you can go on with learning about wine um, in a professional sense. And one of them is to eventually become a master sommelier, which is the court of master somms. Um, That's uh, what the movie Somme is about. Um, And then the other path is to be a master of wine. Um, If you're going to go down that path, um, so doing something like the WCT is very, very important. Um, The final stage of that is a two-year diploma, um, which I finished in 2016. Um, and yeah, it's just an opportunity to learn more. I mean, I'm a bit of a nerd, I'll be honest. Um, I get pretty excited about it all. Um, so once I actually sit down and get stuck into a book, it's it's hard to stop kind of reading. And yeah, the film, I guess it's a trilogy now. Som is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was like for you? The intensity of examination, that uh, huge amount of study, the incredible breadth of knowledge across all that wine. Is that what it really looks like? Yes. Look, in a way, um, I think that it is huge, the world of wine, and it's constantly changing, constantly evolving. So um, to sit down and do an exam which could ask you a question on any of that and a blind tasting exam, um, in my case it was 12 wines blind, um, you, you have to you have to have spent a lot of time learning about it. Um, it is intense, um, but saying that, and I hope I don't offend anybody here. Um, the whole Somme movie thing, there was kind of a whole lot of big dick energy flying around. Um, and <laughs> totally. <laughs> they were very particular personalities too. It was like you were taken to some sort of like turbo wine camp. And I know that everyone takes it that seriously, but these guys were like, their relationships were falling apart. Their lives were in disarray. It was just like, sort your shit out, guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think... Um, Everybody's a little different, and everybody's going to approach it differently. Um, but it is—it is certainly a serious thing to undertake, and it's worth a watch. Actually, that movie—it's like watching anyone. You know, when you watch like the international cupping championships, and it's like people stacking cups really quickly. It's kind of like <laughs> that. Like it's quite a niche thing, but the people that are in it really believe that that's the whole world because that's the way that they have to study and the test that they have to go through. But it's um. Yeah, I yeah. think it, it made me feel relieved that it's not an ambition of mine. <laughs> I tried to watch it last night, but my TV remote had run out of batteries. So then I was like, right, I can't watch it through my Netflix app, so I'll have to watch it on my laptop. And then I couldn't remember my password for Netflix to get it on my laptop, so I just went to bed. That's one of the most Alice stories I've ever heard. I know. <laughs> but as well as pouring drinks and drinking them, Meg is also very good at talking about them. She has a certificate in wine and spirit education. 
Is that right? Yeah. Um, so basically, that was through the same um, the same educational body I did my diploma with. So once you've done your diploma, um, there's a course you can do. Uh, I did it in Melbourne last year that just essentially gives you some tools um, on how to be a better educator. And today she's going to educate us on sake, mezcal, and natural wine. Ooh. But first, we are going to test her palate <laughs> with a beverage of the people, perhaps New Zealand's most beloved and most devoured local beverage, Milo. Exciting uh, times. It, it's very exciting because... I wonder if Meg's palate's more attuned to Milo than ours. I, I mean, I are reckon. you specific to, to wine or do you think that the impact of your training has meant that your palate is turbo just across the board? Oh, I think anybody who spends a lot of time with food and wine would be the same. So I think probably you all have very attuned palates because of the time you spend with food as well as wine. <laughs> the amount of time we waste <laughs> thinking about food. <laughs> Okay. But four years ago, Nestle tried to fix something that was already perfect, and apparently they broke Milo. It was meant to be an improvement based on increased health benefits, and they added vitamin D, B3, B6, and B12, and removed vitamins A, B1, and magnesium, but also vanilla flavoring as well. The public's response was pure outrage, and the media had a field day. They were covering people stockpiling the original recipe. There were petitions to return Milo to its original flavour. And this week, four years later, the people finally got they got what they wanted and Milo was returned to its original glory. About time. Oh, well, know. we're about to find out because I'll be interested if you can actually taste the difference, <laughs> Sophie. So today we're going to run a blind tasting, very similar to the ones Meg did to pass her diploma, although we haven't done two years of... Um, I'd be really <laughs> impressed if I didn't get this right. I don't think I've had Milo for about 10 years. Yeah, that's from. No, I don't think either. I've tried that. And we're going to put one of the most talented palates to the test. All I right. can't believe that um, how massive Milo is. I thought that it was a Kiwi staple and that was about it. But it's made in 24 factories around the world and sold in more than 40 countries. And invented in New Zealand. Australia. Yeah. Australia, Sadly. Simon. Sadly. <laughs> another one, another one Absolute classic things. Kiwi move there. <laughs> It was invented by Thomas Maine, who was um, in Smithtown in New South Wales, but launched in New Zealand in 1935. Should I uh, do the serving? Pour away. Okay, we're going to do a little bit of video, so you might have to close your lappy for a second. So Alice has made for us and is the only one who knows which is which, an original recipe, which is the new recipe, and the new recipe, which is now the old recipe. Yes. So and one that is, is the right recipe, which is the original. Still very confusing, but I think correct we're ready to go. is the current one. So I'll, I'll go first. It's, um, smells like Milo, malty. <laughs> <Milky. laughs> so you start with the one on the right, is that right? Mm. Seems so. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> Simon is using Simon. a spittoon. He is. Somehow more Milo. offensive than with that, wine. That's I don't very, know why. It's very well made, Alice. It's, um, Thank you. I did my best. I mean, my mum would only ever let me have one teaspoon uh, of Milo for each drink, which I thought was bullshit. Mm. She so gave me smoked chicken and now the Milo is... Classic Jane Day. <laughs> <laughs> it's rich. It's not too sweet. Very malty. I'll go in for the second one. This one has little... Still got some chunks in it, which I love. I love the tasting notes. It already smells sweeter. 
You're not supposed to say which one you think it is, though, yet, right? Because um, we will then maybe be influenced. So, <laughs> oh, oh, oh that's, Simon. That's Splash. Are you ready to I, move on? I, I can taste the difference, which is interesting. I didn't think I'd be able to. I hope that the whole thing was bullshit, but that's... I have a preference. Okay. All right. Mm. Your turn, Meg. Okay, so I've actually already smelled the first one, and I'll be honest, uh, the first thing that came to mind was, uh, like, dog biscuits or cat biscuits. Ooh. So I feel like that's probably not a positive start. Okay. Uh, looking at them, uh, the second one seems to be a little kind of, like, richer looking and a bit chunkier. Mm. I may have got confused with the milk measurement measurements. Alice, I was just trying to say, is the recipe the same? Well, it's because Simon came over and started... Snooping. Saying like, oh, you know when you like you forget what you when you're counting. Oh, glass he was and teasing like, oh, you. oh, look, yeah, it tastes tastes like Milo. Yeah. Pretty simple. It's, it's not a, it's not a super strong Milo. I'm I'm definitely a, a sort of a three to four scoop kind of girl. Oh um, yeah, yeah. I was a bit light, wasn't I? Should it's, I go put some more in? It's not offensive though. No, apart from the smell. No, um, so we. I, I'll never forget camp Milos, which were. Probably the, a teaspoon the hot and hot water. hot water. Mainly water. Mainly water. Hot water. Mainly water. To be honest, that was also yeah. my... Uh, the recipe pool. in my house was definitely dominant hot water. Mm. Oh. To this so day, I feel quite lucky if it's milk-based. Yeah, yeah right. So it's special, special occasion here. The absolute symbol of an underprivileged Kiwi upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> hot water in my mind. Not at all. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Body, definitely. A little bit more texture, a bit more weight. Um Oh, more texture, more Interesting. More chocolatey, but that yeah. could be Alice's recipe yeah, adjustment. Well, yeah. No, I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure Alice got it right. Okay. I think the main difference for me is the smell, actually. Um, the one smell and the, 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 there's a bit more richness on the second one. The first one's definitely like really dusty, nasty pet food. Do we have any notes mm. on what they were trying to achieve by changing the recipe for Milo? They Not must have really. thought or it health was... Benefits. But if it ain't broke, so do you think that that was it? They well, there was there was a lot of pushback around Milo having X amount of stars for their health rating, which according to people like Boyd Swinburne was uh, absolute bullshit. Oh, I see. So they were they were actually trying to but achieve. But did they actually a, change the sugar levels at all? I'm not sure. I don't think they did. No, it did say. Oh, or did they? No, it didn't actually. Okay, oh, nice. I've just had the first one, and. That could be any chocolate milk to me. It doesn't taste particularly Milo-ish, but as I said, it's been a, a while between drinks. <laughs> Number two. Oh, it does look quite different. I'm nervous that the recipe's different. Oh, God, I've fucked it up. I'm nervous I've done it the wrong way and I've picked the new, not new. I'm pretty sure you did it the right way around. <laughs> okay. Yes, I have I have gathered my thoughts. Shall we all share what we think is yep. the, the Wait, new? Wait, I can't remember which... Alice knows. Should we let see if Alice yeah, can which, taste? Um, or is glass her... was which jug? Your um, the beer milk jug, jug on your left. Yeah. Water jug on your right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Drum roll. <laughs> so I think um, glass B, the second, is the original recipe. It's definitely the better uh, version of Milo. So Meat? that's one on your what side? The one on my left. The one on my in my left hand is yeah. uh, definitely. In my opinion, the original better Milo recipe that I've hoped they've gone back to. Okay. Yeah, I think it's probably fairly clear from my uh, tasting notes that uh, <laughs> I preferred number two. I also preferred number two. And that's the left one, right? I'm really confused with all this left yes. and right. Yes, this one here. It's on the, the beer left. jug. Beer jug. The beer jug is the 
original new the new one they've gone back to. So they're yeah. right. Yay. Yay. Now Cheers everyone has to finish that one. Milo. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Hey, look, we haven't actually failed a taste test on this podcast yet. I know. Bay, bay leaves we work. We must be all right. And bay we leaves. know what Milo tastes like. <laughs> all right. So mm, now... This one is nicer, isn't it? Yeah, it's that, much nicer. It's much richer. Yeah. Now that that's out of the way, though... That was great. Should we get into some alcohol? Some real drink. Well, yeah. I really want to quickly talk about how people make Milo sandwiches. Has anyone heard oh, of yeah. that? No, never. No, but I'm into it. But really? I have... I have Sprinkled it on ice cream as a child. Oh, I was yeah, going to say the same thing. Talking about other uses for Milo. Perfect use. A sandwich. It's versatile. Ma- Matthew McCauley. <laughs> it sounded like versatile, Holmes. It's versatile. <laughs> Better living, everyone. Yeah. Well, I thought we'd start he- with the heaviest, so then we can measure as we go. Uh, so we're going to go into some mezcal. Okay. Yeah. Look, that's a that's a strong start. Start strong. Start how how we plan so to the right it, right I, thing to, with I, the palate though. I probably wouldn't. Yeah. It's okay. pretty hard to taste no, guide, wine after mezcal. Yeah. I mean, I'd probably do sake, wine, mezcal. D- let's follow the let's the, do it. the yeah. person with real mezcal uh, is a, it's a task. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a fun task. I've been to two mezcal tastings recently, so you know, pretty much a pro. Have you at Laugh Winter? Yes. Mm. How did you enjoy them? Loved it. Perfect. Me too. Save, save your experience. Tell us because we're going to talk about mezcal. I'm actually going to test yeah. you. Oh, see, and, but you're, and you're going to see it. Meg's going to. Probably when I go you. to tastings, I just get drunk and then forget what everything. <laughs> but just no, it was great, good times. Yeah, Alice, you're hard. welcome to leave, but you can stay if you want. I mean, I love it here. Yeah, cool. Hang out. We love having you. Other Alice, that is. We've got two Alices in the room. Yeah. How much should we pour? Oh, a good slug. Ooh, All right, yes. sake time. So I think I know what sake is. It's certainly more familiar to me than uh, mezcal. My guess is it's a Japanese rice wine. So it's definitely Japanese um, most of the time. Um, (laughs) It is made from rice, but it's not actually a wine. So um, the uh, fermentation process is quite unique, um, and it has a little bit more of a similarity to beer, actually, than it does to wine. Wow. Yeah. Um, the sake we're trying today is actually from Queenstown. So it's New Zealand's first sake. Um, around the world, there have been a few different um, breweries popping up in places like uh, Sweden and Canada. Uh, this is New Zealand's first one, but I think they're doing a pretty impressive job. Um, it doesn't necessarily taste exactly the same as Japanese ones, but they don't taste exactly the same as each other anyway. Question. Is sake closer to beer than it is wine? In the way that it's produced or the way that it tastes? In the way that it's produced. So sake is made in a brewery. Absolutely. I've always found brewery one of the hardest words in the world to say. It is actually pretty I'm so glad I'm not the only one because I feel like I say it quite a lot because, you know, talking about beer and (laughs) stuff. And I'm like, boo, Drink a fair bit of beer. I feel like I turn it into a few too many syllables to get around the the consonant issue. That is a fun fact, Meg. I didn't know that. So that's why we would, when Simon said Japanese rice wine, that was exactly how I was, I would describe sake as well. And I guess that's because the taste is closest to wine for us. But in fact, made in a brewery. I think often we make a mistake uh, with food and drink and trying to uh, compare it to what we know best. Mm. So I guess it's sake, not like is, anything. sake is sake. Sake is sake, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. It's super, um, it's 
it's it's a really special beverage, honestly. Like for me, it's really close to my heart. Um, I think the Japanese are an amazing culture that do everything so specifically and with so oh, much detail. And when you learn more and more about sake, you find that um, everything's done in such a specific, exacting way. And it's, yeah, pretty fascinating. What and, percentage are we looking at for this? So most or sake, all sake, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, this is probably about fourteen. Uh, this is sixteen, I think. Yeah, on the back of the bottle, this is sixteen percent. So kind of like a strong red wine, similar kind of alcohol level. Um, sake actually comes um, basically off the off the fermentation at roughly around sort of twenty, maybe twenty two percent, but it's diluted with a little bit of water um, to make it more palatable. I suppose a little bit easier to drink and a little bit more food friendly. Um, saying that you can get Genshu sake, which is basically barrel strength, which is still up there. Um, can I ask a question? Because I actually saw you. Well, re. Re saw you after we went to school together um, at Masu, and you put together a whole sake list for them, didn't you? The wine. I did, yeah. And having a specific sake specialist <laughs> is probably not something that's um, frequent in New Zealand. No, it, it, it is becoming more so, but okay. even then, like, it's sort of two or three people. Um, I first worked as a sake sommelier in Melbourne, um, and then when I came back, I met Nick, and he needed a sommelier. I'm not sure he knew it at the time, but I definitely convinced him he needed one. <laughs> um, and I think because of my experience with sake, as well as wine, it kind of was a perfect, um, it was a perfect match. Um, it's so interesting, because I feel like I'm an absolute rookie here, so you could just start from the beginning and treat us like we know nothing. Okay. What are we looking for? How I do get we taste it? Like cucumber and like a, a bitter cucumber or lots of cucumber skin, like lychee or yeah, yeah. Um, look, the the flavors kind of range from anywhere from sort of lactic, steamed rice, um, rice pudding, those kinds of flavors, right into tropical fruit, lychee, apple, banana, and then as you say, like there can be slightly kind of vegetal characters. Um, they can either go into a slightly unpleasant, faulty. Thing, or they can be just a nice little balance, um, which is what maybe you're seeing with a cucumber skin kind of kind of here. Um, it depends how the sake is made. Sake is all about the production process um, as opposed to wine. So wine you're really talking about uh, trying to express the both the character of the grape variety and the land, so the terroir, the place it's from. Um, sake is really not like that, and that's another reason it's so different to wine. Um, it's really all about the choices that are used by the brewer in, in the brewery, in the process, yeah. Oh, so is that similar smooth. to beer? Is that, because beer has some terroir and where the hops are from, but the final flavour is much less. The uh, recipe. Sort of an articulation of that in the way that wine is. Apart yeah. from wild fermented beers that then do have the terroir of the yeast from wherever it's made. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's it's there's more similarities in terms of the process to beer, but I certainly don't really see the flavours to be that similar, to be no. honest. Um, I think there's real kind of purity in sake, and um, a lot of that comes from the choice of the water that's used. Yeah. Yeah. This is so smooth and drinkable and yum. Yeah. So this is a junmai, which is a pure rice sake. Um, that basically just means it's had the least number of ingredients going into it. So it's just water, rice, koji, and yeast. Mm-hmm. What um, is koji? Koji is essentially um, little tiny rice grains that have been inoculated with a specific kind of mold. Um, it's it's grown and they, they look a little bit like kind of fluffy. Like kind of rice like the, scoby. 
Yeah, kind of like the outside of a camembert or a brie, so quite sort of fluffy, not super scary mould. Um, and that's basically used as part of the process to access sugar. Sharpie. Yeah, sugar from the rice. Yeah. At the um, Ferment Festival, where Zenkuro had a stall, they had a bag of, was it the koji or some sort of, or maybe it was, yeah. Yeah, they had sake kasu. Yeah, and it was like the squishy stuff. It's basically the leftovers from the fermentation yeah. process. So there's some rice sediment, but there's also lees, um, mm. which are dead yeast, which sounds gross but can sometimes taste quite delicious. Yeah. Intriguing. The lees you find in wine, when is that? So it's same thing. Same. It's basically throughout the fermentation, the little yeasties, um, they eat up all the sugar um, and produce alcohol and heat and flavours and carbon dioxide, and then sadly they die. Um, so they kind of fall out of the wine, fall out of the sake and gather at the bottom of whatever you're making it in. They sacrifice themselves for us. They do, but they have a good time in the process, I think. Is sake a drink aside from food drink or is it to be matched with food? Uh, I think that it certainly can be drunk, not necessarily through a full meal, um, but in Japan, in, in my experience, Every time you had sake, you had maybe something little to go with it. So um, one of the most memorable was like this fermented uh, squid gut, I think Ooh. it was. And it was sort of like pretty mm. funky, pretty intense, pretty salty, but it actually worked really well with the sake. Would you drink this at, would you serve it at a party to guests? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They drink that more than they drink wine? No. Um, well, probably more than wine still. Um, sake kind of went underwent a bit of an unfortunate kind of reputation where young people stopped drinking it. It kind of was just like what your granddad mm. would drink. Oh, um, came but, trendy. Yeah, but I think with the resurgence in, in kind of um, wanting to appreciate authentic kind of products, that's, I think, happening everywhere in the world, um, the Japanese really love wine, they really love natural wine, um, and I think that the younger generations are starting to drink sake more than they used to. Do you drink cool. it in your everyday life, sake? Uh, I actually do, um, saying that it's not as common as I would like, probably because it's not as easy to get and I'd have to be a lot more organised in advance to have a constant supply of it <laughs> at my house. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing with cheese. It's one of my favourite things to have with cheese, well, especially aged sake that. or richer styles. Yeah. Okay. I might start there. Cheese and sake. Good. Yeah. I, I interviewed um, Wayne from Ibisu once. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, yeah, he said sake was really good with pizza. Charles, like, mm, yeah. is Wayne Japanese? Nope. Oh, I would have loved. <laughs> <laughs> Does he Wayne sound Wayne Japanese? No, I, I know, but sometimes <laughs> when people move to, uh, it happens with a lot of. Chinese people, I had a dolphin who I went to school with, and I had a Dora who had, oh, the, had named they herself the after name. um, Dora the Explorer. And I was really hoping that <laughs> Wayne was Japanese. Had chosen. Had I don't think anyone Wayne. would choose the name Wayne. I how mean, does, no offence to any Waynes out there. How does sake go as a sort of quaffing drink? Like, Would you have six glasses of sake? Or is it more like you have some and then you'd, you'd move on to something? Tina's like, yes, you A lot would. of the time the glasses are a lot smaller. <laughs> You can definitely get oh, it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I always find it's quite a warm, sort of happy drunk. It's mm. not really. I've never been an aggressive sake drinker. Um, Have you ever, get that, that implies I've had other aggressive drinking um, moments in my life. I'm not going to admit to anything <laughs> like that. Oh, no. But you like you haven't seen people just, some people don't just smash a whole bottle of sake to themselves. It's a shared arrangement. 
Yeah, I think um, in general with with drinking um, in Japanese culture anyway, um, it's very much about kind of sharing, pouring for your guests, pouring for each other. Um, so it's quite a, a, a group process. Um, so certainly I think people would go through a number of bottles of sake while sitting together drinking. But um, I don't think it's like you just have that bottle to yourself. You don't go to a BYO with a bottle of sake. When I went yeah. to Japan, I was with my friend Lucy who's celiac and she can't drink, so she can't drink beer. Mm. But I made her come to a craft beer bar with me and she tried to order a gla- glass of sake, but they gave her a whole bottle. And then it just... You know, she pretty much drank the whole thing. And then I think, yeah, I can't really, we don't know. Lost her Lucy camera. Lucy, want you to continue. <laughs> Lucy, yeah. Sorry, Lucy, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's best for everyone if the rest of Lucy's night isn't uh, mm. divulge on air. Yeah. Anyway. Can I ask you another question about sake, please, Meg? When do you warm it up? Um, so I think once people start to get to know a little bit about sake, they get under this misconception that only bad sake should be warmed. Um, I disagree with that. I just think it needs to be of a very specific style. So if you've got a ginjo or a daiginjo, super delicate, really pretty, and they have lots of aromatic character. If you warmed up um, a sake like that, basically you'd lose all the aromatic character. So you'd lose the whole point and the joy of the sake. Um, if you have a junmai, which is actually like what we're drinking today, um, and something that's a bit richer, maybe an age, not, probably not an age sake, but something a bit fuller, um, Junmai also has a bit higher acidity, and that actually can really lend itself to being served warm. Not necessarily like piping hot, but just... So is it just personal preference? It's not like you should have it hot if it's this kind, you should have it cold if it's this kind, or is it certain times of the meal? It, I mean, a little bit of all of that. I think, um, as I said, like certain styles, I think that you would want to have chills because it just makes, it enhances mm. the character. Some work warm or they work both. They can be good, cold or, or warmed. Um, and I personally think like uh, cold sake probably goes more throughout a whole meal. Um, but warm sake, one of the things I always I like to think about um when you have things like toro or fatty tuna or wagyu, which are like obviously super fatty things, when you eat them, that fat kind of melts on your palate, right? And it gives you this delicious sort of caramelized, yummy, tasty umami thing. Um, if you were to put a really cold sake, it's like the fat hardens. Yeah, it's congealed. And that's congeal kind of a sad thing, yeah. So that for me is a time that drinking a, a really lovely sake that's kind of rustic and has some acid warmed would be perfect with food. Yum, I want mm-hmm. some tataki now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. This is yeah. great. This Lots is of probably tips. the first podcast where we haven't had food. I know. I should have brought have some Milo. cheesels. Have another glass of Milo. It's <laughs> yeah. like a glass of Guinness. It comes with uh, lots of nutrients. Yeah. Well, they took all the vitamins out, so maybe not. So we, we keep the ball rolling, keep it moving, uh, and we're going to touch on natural wine. I thought I knew what natural wine was, uh, and then I went to an event where Meg was one of the speakers. It was about natural wine, and I left the event that was about what natural wine is with less uh, <laughs> clarity, with a less clear idea of what natural wine um, was. So hopefully you can help us. Maybe we should all say what we think it is and just let Meg bum us out. Okay. <laughs> what do you think natural wine is? Oh, well, I think it's a very broad term, which means the wine is made without certain interventions, but it can be anything from 
just using organic biodynamic principles in the vineyard to no sulfites, etc. So it can just be like an organic wine that still is quite normal winey, or it can be like, you know, you get the Garage Project Wild Workshop wines, which are quite, like, I like them, but they're quite like, whoa, Funky, is this even yeah. wine? So, yeah. yeah, basically, that's my definition. And I think I thought it was more narrow than that, which indicates that I'm wrong. Um, I, well, I thought Maybe wrong. that natural wine is just wine that has not had synthetic anything added to it or interfered with it. So from the spraying of the grapes through to the in the winery. That's my perce- that was my perception as well. I thought it was untouched by um, anything basically other than man-made. The you know the hands of uh, the people who help pick it, then the winemaker and the soil. It was something of um, the earth and something of uh, you know the, the people who who needed to make the wine itself. Then I then I heard. Then I learnt the truth. Well, I'm not even sure what the truth is. <laughs> Go, Meg. What tell us what the natural truth. wine you know is. What? I mean, that's you've kind of all hit the nail on the head with that because um, around the world, it's a term that has so much controversy and so many different opinions about what it really means. But in terms of the 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 core of what natural wine is, in my personal opinion, what I really think it should be, and I think what generally the, the most people think it is, is Kind of, I like what you said, Simon, about being of the earth. Um, so it's grapes that are grown not conventionally. So essentially that means they haven't had chemicals or any kind of crazy things thrown onto the vineyard. Um, uh, so it's just allowed to be a natural process, um, usually quite kind of holistic in that other, um, other animals and other plants are allowed to grow around the same area. Um, and nothing's really been added to that before it comes into the winery. And then when it gets to the winery, at this point, usually um, a lot of conventional um, winemaking, you can kind of throw so many different things at it. Um, I don't think a lot of people really realise how many additives are actually routinely put into the wine that we that most of us drink. Because you're not required to list them on the bottle, are you? You are not required. It's not considered in the mm. same way as food, and that's something that I would like outrageous. to change. It's outrageous. Um, but yeah, basically it means nothing's happened, nothing's been added, nothing's been taken away. Um, so it's all about just expressing that 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 time and that place um, and kind of allowing the wine to do it itself, do it naturally. Um, so that's obviously fermentation with natural yeasts um, and it's allowing the balance of all the little kind of microbes that are in there to kind of work together as opposed to killing them all off and then trying to create something that's kind of lacking a little bit in life. It's interesting that you describe it as unconventional because I feel like wine would have been made naturally for much longer than it would have been made like modern wine is now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, conventional um, winemaking really took off mid-last century. Um, uh, and it, you're right, conventional is a funny term. And I think a lot of natural wine producers get quite frustrated because they think that maybe they need to have organic certification or, um, you know, all this sort of stuff written on their labels to tell people that they haven't done anything to it. But people who've done a whole bunch of stuff don't have to put anything on there. Um, so, yeah, that, that difference between conventional, natural, traditional, historical, all those words can be a little diff- yeah kind of tricky in this situation. Why are eggs and sulfates and 
all those other things we've just talked about added to why? There's a few reasons. Um, I think probably the main one really is stability. Um, So I think it was an easy way to make a wine shelf stable was to be basically take out anything that could change the wine while it's in bottle and on shelf. Um, And so that gives you consistency. Um, It means that you're not going to be having to take wine back, especially if you're shipping it across the world, things like that. Um, Interestingly for me with natural wine, a lot of the time, If you give it a bit of time, if you allow the wine to do its thing, it comes to a natural level of stability on its own. Um, I think the thing is if you're trying to rush that process, that's when things go wrong. Hmm. Biodynamic, organic and natural, Mm. what's the difference? Uh, So organic. This is where I got confused at at the event. Okay, so organics... um, not using any chemicals, so no fertilizers, no fungicides, herbicides, etc. Um, and uh, a lot of the time, um, uh, people would choose to have a certification, and you have to have done very specific things um, and show records of that in order to get certification. Yeah, and pay a dude with a clipboard quite a lot of money to walk around, right? And exactly. spend three years for your exactly. soil to be certified, yeah. which exactly. is the biggest obstacle, I think. Yeah, really hard. Um, biodynamics takes organics a little bit of a step further. Um, so again, it's not using any kind of chemicals to grow those grapes and to sort of push push yields and things. Um, it's working with uh, basically the working with the, the cosmos. Moon? Yeah, yeah. So working with with the the way the planets, the sun, and the moon are in the sky, and essentially the idea is that they affect natural things on Earth um, through gravity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Which um, makes sense when you look at tides. For I know. Example. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's always my first uh, my first point. Um, but I am a little bit of a hippie at heart. Um, but essentially, yeah. And you, you do different processes at different times of the cycle. Um, there are days that are better for bottling. There are days that are better for picking. Things like that. Um, but really, for me, with biodynamics, and I don't know whether it comes exactly from the sun and the moon because I'm not a scientist and I don't know. Um, or if it comes from the dedication and the care that's taken. But the wines for me have this incredible sense of energy um, and just this X factor that always surprises me. Cool, spiritual wine. Yeah. Really <laughs> yeah. So w- what are we drinking now? Uh, so this is from a producer called Tin Can. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Kiwi, young couple, um, they're based in Nelson. Um, they both spent time uh, overseas making wine around the world um, for some big companies and then some smaller kind of natural natural producers. Um, and then they came home a few years ago at, essentially to see what could be done with pushing the pushing the natural wine revolution in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, based in Nelson, it's a pet nat, which basically means it's a it's a sparkling wine. Um, uh, lightly like sparkling. Half, half sparkling, hey? Yeah, so um, usually there's a second fermentation for something like champagne, so it's more bubbly. Um, this is actually just bottled partway through the first fermentation, so it's a more gentle kind of frizzante style than a super, super so, yum. firm bubble. I actually think it's really delicious. It's sort of juicy and bright mm. and fun. Juicy and would have been the first. Like yeah. when, I, when you smell it, it's got... Um, Orange, you know, very sweet orange juice notes, and then once it, you taste it, it cleans that out with some nice bitterness. It's really, really fun. Yeah, and it's the colour of just juice, yeah. essentially. Yeah, well, white wine's Foggy. usually taken off the skins pretty quickly, yeah. and I think if you leave a little bit of that in there, leave some of those solids, you get these beautiful kind of bright but quite intense mm. colours too. Love it. Um, what about the? So you know how some natural wines are 
pretty funky in flavour. Mm, yeah. I think I gave one to my mum and she, she said it tasted like kombucha. <laughs> and then also, you know how they're quite foggy in their appearance. Is it a requirement of natural wine that they be unfiltered and unfined? I know that um, traditional or, as we were saying, conventional wineries will often pass the wine egg whites through the wine yep. to fine it. Yeah, so there are lots of different things can be that can be used um, to do things like make it clear and bright, to make it shelf stable. Um, and these are all, some of these are really just about what the consumer is used to seeing. Um, natural wine, um, as part of that nothing added, nothing taken away, they, they believe that any kind of serious filtration will be taking both solids and things, but also character and flavour out of the wine. Um, so hence why you have a lot of slightly cloudy styles. But there's nothing wrong with it. It's not bad for you. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it just looks kind of different. So you can have natural wines that are filtered and fined as well. I think the problem is is that I can't – because there are different opinions about what a natural wine exactly is, I think that the general consensus would probably be that fining and filtering would not make it – that would not no longer be a natural wine. Okay. Um, so basically, yeah, no finding, no filtration, and either none or very, very minimal additions of sulfur um, at bottling. Yes, I was going to ask you a question, or can I offer you a challenge? My uncle is the winemaker at Tomato Estate. Mm-hmm. He strongly feels that the natural wine industry, um, I guess, I guess it's an education piece, but makes the conventional winemakers or wineries like Tomato. Um, appear sort of more villainous than they are because, <laughs> for example, he said he's really only a- um, adding sulfur and sort of natural elements to is it to the actual vine or is it in the winery? What he was saying was we keep everything to a an absolute minimum anyway. I think that it's the maybe it's the implication that there's shitloads of additives being put into the wine that that they object to, but how different are we talking from a quality, a well-made conventional wine and a natural wine? It really all depends on the producer. So as you say, um, there are some that are, you know, bigger names, more conventional styles of wine that really aren't doing a huge amount, but they're using enough sulfur to kind of keep it... um, Keep it very kind of pristine and clean in a way. Basically, he was saying like what we're doing is adding things that are naturally produced, that are naturally occurring anyway, or basically making the point that we are minimal intervention anyway. So, what is the difference? And I know that there's lots that ram their wine full of chemicals. Yeah, I think that there would be a lot of people who don't consider what he does to be minimal intervention exactly, though. Um, But again, I'm certainly not here to demonise what he does. I think that they make amazing wine. Um, uh, It's just... it's just the degrees to which you think these things are important, I suppose. Yeah, and th- and that's what it kind of seemed like, right? Because we did um, in Ireland, they had the Irish Sommelier of the Year come to cooking school and give us all a good talking to. And he was speaking a lot about um, kind of what Simon was saying, is that all these guys up in the um, steep sort of French high country are going, hang on a minute, we have been making wine like this forever So why is it now such a thing? And they were really advocating people returning to um, as little intervention as possible. But it seemed, like you were saying, that a lot of the um, intervention appears to be more about the um, keeping it shelf stable or making it, is it to make it more palatable or... 
Yeah, I mean, I think... Like, if we're talking about shitty wine, what are they doing to it and why? Well, the thing is, is that partly to make it cheaper, you know, if you're able to to put things into the wine that will um, easily make it taste a certain way, make it shelf-stable, things like that, it's much faster than waiting to see if it naturally comes into balance. Um, And the fact is we wouldn't be able to have sort of $10 bottles of wine on the supermarket shelf um, if everybody was trying to make natural wine because it's just impossible to do it that cheaply. Um, so, look, there's a place for those wines in the world. There are some people who can't afford more expensive wine or some people who might be able to, but they they don't know much about wine. They haven't tried a lot yet and they just wouldn't... Don't value it for... Yeah, yeah and they wouldn't go for a $40 bottle to start with, but maybe in time they would, but they have to start somewhere. Um, What's your favourite? Do you have a strong preference for natural wine or do you drink both? Look, I, I do drink both but I would say that um, the kind of more mainstream producers that I choose to drink would be very much on the edge of natural mm. um, and I do I do really have a, a personal preference and it's partly about looking after the land it's partly about working working with the land and working with um, things that come naturally um, and as I mentioned that energy that vibrancy in the wines saying that there are wines like this pet night that we're tasting today that are really fun and really juicy and they're probably the more like modern style like quite a new world style of natural wine and then you've got producers like uh, Jean Foyard in, in um, Beaujolais whose wines you wouldn't necessarily yeah you wouldn't necessarily um, just taste it and think this is natural because it's a bit funky and it's a bit weird those are just beautifully made wines that are super approachable um, so I think that there's a big scope within natural wine as well there are shitty natural wines but there are shitty conventional wines it does seem that there is quite a lot of people in the sort of traditional mainstream wine industry who are quite anti-natural wine. Would you agree with that? I feel confronted by yeah. it. And yeah. Do you think it's fair? Or? I think that it's understandable if you've spent most of your life believing that wine should be made in this, this super scientific way. Um, modern science has been great for wine, but it's also potentially been detrimental depending on your point of view. Um, and that's the thing. It's, it is really about point of view. But I would like to think that I'm somebody that sits in the middle and and has maybe a reasonable view, viewpoint of both. Um, I was and I say, think a lot of people don't everyone. have that. Yeah, people everyone can get quite grumpy. Everyone hands and got on with it. Yeah. It definitely you know, feels like you're supposed to have a foot in one camp or the other. It does. And some people, you know, it, they really get quite aggressive yeah. about, no, natural wine's always faulty, it's always terrible. Yeah. And you kind of just go, relax. And then know, they open it's a, delicious, give it a try. You know? And then they open a packet of processed food from the supermarket and put their hand in it. You know, it's like, it's very virtuous. Yeah. I feel like for too long we've been um, gifted wine from the supermarket that's, you know, $17 down to 14 and we have refused to think of wine now even as I've started to you know have the ability to purchase more interesting things I'm willing to spend $40 on a a six pack of beer you know but I still gravitate towards uh, the bottom shelf at supermarkets. Which I think that might be in your genetics, Simon Day. <laughs> oh, it's definitely not in my genetics. My uh, parents are alarmed by my drinking uh, behaviour. Um, Maybe you could tell the group about the, the the wine that we were drinking when I came to stay with you in Paris a few years ago. What was Pelle, your budget? Pelle de Pepe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, wita, wita. I would go across the road to get 
uh, three euro wine? That was Simon's uh, wine budget was three euros a bottle. I reckon if you there. can get three euro wine, I mean, that's amazing. We would I drink would go it for it too. During winter. To give it a go. During winter, we'd show up to the, the club or the bar where we were meeting friends. And Millie and I would snuggle into a phone booth. You know, it's snowing outside, it's windy, and it's freezing cold in Paris. And we'd drink our $3 bottle of wine out of the bottle and then, you know, warm warm inside, go into the club to meet everyone. <laughs> so he was putting their I've never down? been poorer in my life, though. Like, you've got to understand Good on that. you, Simon. Like, it, was I'm a with t- you. it was a time in my life where I was happily destitute. Yes, I was going to say, I think you just embraced it with such a plomb. It really became I'm good part at of being your personality. Poor, honestly. <laughs> I've been there too. You, I you think also, there is absolutely, like we always talk about with food, to me, you're absolutely kicking goals when you are being frugal with food. You're stretching it out, you're not throwing it away, you're using all the parts of it. It's like with Eating wine. Eating kebabs out of rubbish bins. <laughs> yeah, we'll draw the line there. But but I think that with wine, that my ultimate goal is to find the wine that is the best value for the money. So if it's the world's best red and it's only $40 a bottle, great. But even better if it's a $16 bottle of Gimblet Gravel Syrah that's just under another name because the winery doesn't want to put their name on it or something. You know, I think there's a there's a real sense of accomplishment when you find the the wine that is epic for its value. Like Portuguese wine. Everyone loves a bargain. So reasonable. It's human nature. I get that. And I totally support it. I, I really do. Like, I, I think it's there's a place in the world for wine like that. And it is exciting to find a wine that you're like, you know what? I only paid $17. I only paid $12 for this. You, you know, you feel great about that. She's but, being polite, Sophie. But I guess, no, no, no. But, but I guess but. that, like, I feel like this <laughs> is the point where people have kind of forgotten that wine is actually a natural product made by people. Um and that paying more means, you know, you're getting so – you are getting more for it and you're supporting people who are doing something that works with the land that's – Which I'm into, if the know, quality is proportionate to the tr- price. Fair, that's fair. And natural wine is not cheap. It's not easy if you've never tried it before um, to just buy it off the shelf and trust that you're going to enjoy it. I get, you know, that's a difficult proposition. You have to kind mm. of put yourself out there. Yeah, but Sam, that's why we've got people like you to help us. <laughs> Meg isn't always around, and I think Sam Mannering's story on the weekend uh, applies in this situation as well, where we as consumers need to have a greater appreciation of the time... The cost of doing business. ...effort and expense that goes into um, making, in so many cases, quite a interesting and extraordinary product. Totally. We're yeah, now it's, on to... It's, speaking it's of, absolutely, what it, there is... Show me wine, a winemaker that's, that's absolutely killing it in New Zealand. Show me a restaurant or a cafe owner that is laughing all the way to the bank. It practically doesn't exist. So when the consumer says, oh, that's expensive, you kind of have to say, based on what? Like, yeah. what you don't understand is that that person has, is breaking even. So it is impossible for it to be cheaper than that. And therefore, we've kind of, there's like a juxtaposition between that what the actual cost should be and what it is because people are just not willing to pay more. There's a real lack in understanding between uh, people making things or serving them to you and those consuming them who who actually understand uh, their value. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of wine has become commodity and that means that people have just forgotten that connection, Um, which is sad. It is. It's super sad. Mm. 
So we are now drinking a Cambridge Road Pinot Noir mm-hmm. from Martin Borough. Yeah, so one of my one of my favourite producers of natural wine in New mm-hmm. Zealand, um, and actually one of the ones I got to know um, pretty early on in returning from Australia. Um, from Martinborough, um, he just has a really kind of gentle touch with Pinot. It's always super silky and beautiful and texturally super interesting. And that's another thing that I find with natural wine. A lot of the time the texture's quite lovely, quite sort of silky. Um, and that's maybe because they haven't taken out a lot of those a lot of those things from the wine. It says on the back, we hope you enjoy this unique expression of our land. We well, do. That's what I find really interesting. It looks like Pinot. It sort of it smells recognisable, but it is really different. It's um, it's more layered. It's it's very smooth to start with, and then it comes in a little bit later with some bright fruit and. It's really, really fun, and it's only $33, and it's made by, you know, really incredible people that, yeah. that you've just talked about. And I think that it's, you know, basically a small price to pay, especially if you can invoice it back to Duncan Grieve. Yeah, I'd thanks, like, Duncan. I was going to say, I'd like just that soundbite, please, Tina, just so I can play that to Simon Day. Next time I come to your house for dinner, I'll be expecting at least $33 <laughs> of wine on the table. Well, I'm, I, you know, I'm willing to spend that at the Organic Butcher. You know, I don't, um, I'd never serve you frozen peas. He's moving peas. up in the world, guys. Uh, There's nothing wrong with frozen peas, come there, on. No, that, that's actually true. I love frozen peas. You could do a whole episode on frozen peas. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. But I don't, God, you know. Next time. I actually, yeah. But when you come for dinner at my house, Sophie, I want you to bring your own bottle of wine to give to me. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of convention, so and so invite, invite me over, and I'll, invite me over and I'll come with a $40 bottle of wine. So I will buy the wine that you think I should buy to bring to your house for dinner. We've got a deal. Yeah. Cool. Right, now watch. We move on to Mezcal. Mm. Oh, my God. I'm nervous. Well, this is... Um, or should we do our... Like- gonna, the Mezcal is going to put both Alice and Sophie on the spot. Um should we start with you, Alice? Yeah. You've be- you've recently been to a Mezcal education series. Yes. Tell us what oh you learned. Oh, God. Um, mezcal is made from an agave plant, but it's like a whole lot of different species, whereas tequila is just one species. So does that mean tequila is a type of mezcal? Mm, I can't remember. Not yeah. Yes, it yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was saying I go to these tastings, but then you know I get a bit drunk and I forget to listen. You, I know. No, also uh, you are quite you're quite slight. You know they probably just get you one one mezcal. Oh, and bloody! Be away. Just, Alice no, knows what I can she's hold doing. me. Lucky you should have seen me on Simon's house with a didgeridoo on Friday. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Cut that out! I wish I'd seen that. Poison. Here's my other thing I remember. It is kind of like roasted, kind of like an ahangi, the agave, and that's how they make it. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's basically an underground um, oven called a horno that's um, powered yeah. by wood yeah. smoke. Yeah. And they're quite different. Like, there are a whole lot of different expressions that we try. They're all, like, some are super smoky and some are, like, not smoky. Are you a mezcal expert as well? Oh, I wouldn't go that far. Um, but I do love it, and I have worked relatively closely with it in recent times. Oh, yeah, you are. Yeah, she knows all of the things about all of the oh, go If you're in Auckland, everyone, go to La Fuente, the mezcal bar. 
they also have amazing wines. Yep, yep. Wine and mezcal bar. Um, and, and I agree. Food. Definitely go there. It's and fantastic. Edmundo is a charming fellow. It's a great place to um, learn as well because you can do a lot of different tastes. So you can do sort of little 20 mil tastes of mezcal or if you really want to go for it, a big 60 mil glass. But same thing with the wine. You can do a 50 mil pour so you don't have to have a full glass and it means you get to try more things. Yeah. I had a flight and it was heaps of fun. And again, it was so important. Uh, that the waitress who looked after us was so well educated on it. We got um, oh, it's otherwise it's literally just a minefield. Such beautiful mm. insight into a drink I'd never tried before. Though it was really really fun. Yeah, yeah. I was quite inspired by the um, the chef's table episode with the restaurant called Puyol in Mexico City. Yes, um, and so we went there um, in July last year. Me and my husband and our two friends that we were travelling with. And we did, um, they have two different kind of degustations you can do. And we did the one that was taco degustation. Oh. Eight courses, it was up at the bar. And the matching, there was a different matched mezcal with each course. Um, and I went in thinking that all mezcal was created equal. And yeah, it really taught me a lot. It was unfortunately on the back of me being arrogant about being told not to drink the water and... Mexico and so just cleaning my teeth in the shower, the old Mexican belly so I didn't get to enjoy it as much as I would have otherwise because I think that the smoke and the it was like having smoky tequila on a sore stomach but I pushed on through like a champion. You're a champ. Thanks guys. (laughs) So we're about to drink some mezcal now but Sophie Sophie isn't. Well you can, can you spit mezcal? Yeah, I guess so. I guess you can do that. Is this a moment where you need yeah, to make your announcement, moment. Sophie? There's a big announcement. Guys, I'm having a baby. Yay! <laughs> She's having a baby. Oh, so sorry. I could use the spittoon. <laughs> I, um... Meg just drank a glass that I poured for her of mezcal <laughs> like it was the glass of water. Oh, that oh no! I just tipped We've all not, been Not there. intentionally. We've, We've all done there. that. <laughs> You know, in the morning, next to the bed, oh, no, the old always. gin. Someone's yeah, put who, their gin. Who in hasn't? I, I thought I was rinsing drank. my wine glass, so I tipped it from my non-water. Turns out it was mezcal glass into my wine glass. Oh, no. Swirled it to rinse, and then just drank it like it was <laughs> oh, water. <laughs> so it was wine mezcal combo. All right, Meg, straight into yeah, it. You, you yeah. really overshadowed Sophie's announcement. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh yes, I'm happy with that. Thank you. No, I'm done on that. Look, who isn't <laughs> having a baby these days? Let's be honest. Just kidding. I'm excited. Congratulations. Meg, what are we going to drink now? Uh, so we're looking at um, mezcal from a producer oh, called Derombes. Um, uh, these guys are quite interesting because they each bottle, each sort of label that they do comes from a different state and a different area of Mexico. So if you were to go through all of their different labels, it would give you a really good idea of how mezcal can be so different across states, across different areas, but also using different agave that maybe grow better in a certain area and that sort of thing. Um, so this one uh, is from San Luis Potosi, I think. I don't know if I said it entirely correctly. Um, and the um, agave is called Salmiana Crescispina. It's so clean. It's really, um, it's really smooth and gentle. I was expecting to be attacked. This is one of the ones that I would probably pour early on for people if they're going through a flight or if it's they haven't had a lot of mezcal. Because mm, it's expecting to be attacked. Wow. <laughs> I was because you know I, I, th- I think I think for a lot of people it's going to be really hard to disassociate mezcal with teque- tequila. Yeah. And I have I had to pull out of the event Alice went to because I was very hungover, and 
I didn't know if uh, Mezcal was what I needed at that time. But I feel like if I was given this, it might have been just what the doctor ordered. Just the ticket. Totally. I'd say that's kind of lighter on the smokiness as well. There's not a lot of smoke at all? Yeah, there's a little bit, but I don't think it's like a heavily, heavily smoky style. Um, I don't really like the really heavily smoky ones. And what I thought was that that was compulsory with Mezcal. And when we did this tasting, they went through and they're like, oh, you don't like the smokiness, try this one. And so I sort of, that was the first time that I realised that there are different types of Mezcal. So if you have tried it and you don't like it, folks, hang in there. There'll be a Mezcal for you. There's a Mezcal for everyone. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, that's nice. I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's also a little bit lower in alcohol as well, so sometimes that can kind of be a little bit gentler to, to drink just straight, which is Only how we're drinking it. Only 43.8%. Okay, true, but it can get up to sort of 55, 60 quite easily. So <laughs> Yeah, and also nice in cocktails, isn't it? Mm. Great, yeah, absolutely. It plays well with a lot of different flavours. Mezcal Negroni, top Ooh, notch. Yes. That would be... The- Guys, this is not fair. <laughs> Can yeah, you make so me one in a few months? Year? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, we'll we can be do that. in the delivery room Thank you. waiting. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. We, um, well, can you drink in the delivery room? At that point is the... Surely. 100%. Yeah. I'm and sure I that was the, yeah, the, the thing to do um, to help you through birth before epidurals were a thing, you know, 200 years ago. Before we knew yeah. what alcohol does. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to drink it and then quickly get the baby out. <laughs> You're drinking mezcal in the delivery you suite yeah, pretty you wanted, quickly. You wanted, wanted a long <laughs> Maybe it'd speed it along a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, and what are we? Are we having mezcal with food? Or, I mean, I get more party vibes from mezcal. Like you have it as a no, cocktail food, or as a beverino on the town. Bevoir, yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think it's both. I mean, I'll happily, I'll happily have a little casual just little glass of mezcal later in the evening and not necessarily have it with food but um i mean you tried it at um pujol which i went to as well a couple of years before you did um and uh that trip when i was in mexico absolutely opened my eyes to mezcal that's when i first really started loving Mm. it um and uh with food yeah absolutely because because there are so many different examples of it, um, it's it's really full flavoured. So it's not like you're going to have it with the most delicate sort of dashi base like chow and mushi. Like you're not going to have it with things you'd have sake with necessarily. But big, smoky, delicious kind of like punchy flavours, then mezcal is yeah. pretty fantastic. Apparently um, good for the digestion. Else, mm. Everything else would sort of disappear behind, mm. you know, like a big smoky piece of meat in Mexico. Yeah, Absolutely. It, I think it. Um, I'm really surprised by how different it is to tequila, how delicious it is, mm. and how dangerously drinkable it is. It is dangerously drinkable. So let's go. What through our segments? Yes. So, so what we've are we got to get to? out? We're yep. approaching an hour as usual. No, I'm just settling in for the long haul now. Too I know. much chat. We too really much know drink. How to just go oh, on. No, it's no, easily man. been. Um, I have to give you credit, Meg. It's easily been the smartest. Yes. Uh, yes. This is a brainy episode. Not a lot of shit. Well, quite a lot of shit has been talked, but like <laughs> we should stuff. have that at the beginning. You know, it's like a warning. This one is going to grow your brain. No. Most, of, most of the time they don't. But maybe if they have it while they're drinking, listen to this while they're drinking. Exactly. It'll, exactly. Oh, I love that. It'll balance you know, like, it out. When you watch The Big Lebowski and you're supposed to have a yeah. white, white Russian, Russian every yeah. time he does. Yeah. Do you know I've I had think a, that should be part of the instructions. I've had a white Russian made from breast milk. 
Oh my oh, God! What? See, look, just well, when we were special. saying how highbrow we were. So what we'll do is so like challenge six, seven months podcast. We will have a white Russian made from breast milks. Oh my so God! Too far. <laughs> Cut that. We could, we could milk you live. You should oh be so lucky. <laughs> Simon Live Day milking. is crossing the line. Did you know there's a um, there's a food oh, it's an ice cream truck in New York that makes ice cream from breast milk? Gross. Oh, delish. Mm. We once put my sister's breast milk in my brother-in-law's cup of tea, but then he didn't drink it because we started laughing, and he was like, oh, you put breast milk in, didn't you? I, oh. drank, I drank breast milk just the other day. Did you? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Simon, you've like already a, said three creepy I'm breast milk remember, things about I'm yourself. I don't remember whose breast milk it was. How can you not remember oh, like well. how many people out there We once had a bird on a wire staff do and played a game of fingers over a bottle of breast milk. Oh, no. Who lost? <laughs> Boogie. Let's just say Boogie lost for the public. Yeah, yeah, Boogie lost. He had to drink a pint of breast milk <laughs> so really um, anyone on. who's listening should challenge someone else to listen to the podcast with two glasses of natural wine a glass of sake and a glass of mezcal in front of them yeah and then send us a feedback email highly recommended yeah, <laughs> so cook's corner cook's corner this is a good one because I get a shout out I'm really excited yeah, oh, no, I might change my mind and not oh. mention you at all no I will I will it was good Sophie, you're you know are you preparing for childbirth already, and you're putting stuff in the freezer. Okay, two things. Firstly, the answer is no, but I would like to be. I would like to roll a freezer anyway. I read this book. You know those tiny little like the wallpaper guides. There's a Nigella yes. Lawson one that's called Eating, and basically she is a domestic goddess. But when you're reading it. It just really inspires you to just get a chest freezer and get stuck in and buy everything when it's in season and when it's cheaper, then turn it into, you know, it's more like the ingredients that you want to make things later, like a Pomodoro, like make a delicious tomato sauce and freeze it rather than like the old Kiwi, like put your leftover dinner in the freezer. <laughs> so my my tip, this this is partly because of chops. discussions, the, um, dis- disagreements between my husband and I, is that you should only freeze things that you have a meal in mind for he's definitely guilty of just putting like the leftover whatever liquid it is mm. in a container in the freezer which obviously then just looks like miscellaneous soup yeah but completely unhelpful if you want to make mystery liquid yeah if you want to make soup and then you get it out and it's actually like a heavy asian broth you're like well anyway so can you freeze breast milk Yes. I'll let you know, but I think you can, yeah. Um, So my tip is that please only freeze things that you have a meal in mind for, but also if you want to um, be like Nigella, have a whiteboard above your freezer if it's a chest freezer and write down what's going in. Or just label everything properly before it goes in so that when you look in there, you know exactly what it is and you can get out exactly what you need. need and put the date freezer. on, someone told me. I'm ordering a chest freezer this week. I'm pumped about it. How Chest freezers remind me of my grandma. Yeah. How long can you okay freeze stuff for? Say, say I freeze um, a, green, a chicken green curry. I think you're failing at freezing if you're freezing things for like years on end. Yeah. But it would probably be all right, wouldn't it? Who my dad knows. gave me some fish. It's a preservation How method. I mean, I don't imagine that it would the food would go off while it was frozen. But yeah, I think the the quality would deteriorate over yeah, time I for sure. Right. I think it's just the quality. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Won't kill you. Freezer burn after a while. Know. Yeah. You're Who's up, got Alice? a tip? Oh, um, what was my tip? Oh yeah, a mandolin, not the stringed instrument of ye olden times, but a slicer called a mandolin. That's like I don't know how to explain it, but. 
very thinly slices things without any effort whatsoever and it glides beautifully. You just have to be careful not to cut your hand. No one is allowed to use a mandolin in the presence of my mother without her going on at length about getting out, using the guard, holding it with a tea towel and Mm. making sure you don't ever use a mandolin without using the guard. Those are the things that chefs slice their fingers off on, basically. I mean, I have injured myself on mine quite a lot. But just I used it the other day to slice butternut squash and it just... So satisfying, you know, like you put no Makes effort in. Makes you look in. awesome. No, I love, I and love I thinly lips. sliced it and then put it in like a noodle soup thing. It cooks so quickly. And what about the and mandolin everything? A radish. That's yeah, very, that is very rewarding very experience. Rewarding. Be careful. Yeah, because it's yeah, so small. You have to use I got mine dice. in Japan and it was very cheap. A Benrina brand, which I think is like eighty dollars here. I was going Japan to say to add to the mandolin comment because mandolins are expensive. If you're talking about getting the full gangster version, yeah. From the Asian supermarket, um, I imagine that they're all over the country, but I know that you can get them from Limchur. Such an Aucklander um, thing to say. I just presume they've all got Asian supermarkets in the corner. Like, no, <laughs> not okay. in Gore, okay? Okay, well, next time you go past an Asian supermarket, um, you can Sorry, get... Sorry, listeners in Gore. You can get mini, so individual mandolin. So it's like a, it looks like a mini grater, oh, and it's got good. one blade in it, but it's also got some other jagged edges for different, if you want to make funky-shaped carrots. But they're literally, I think, $3.50, and that one blade and the width of it is enough. So cool. if you don't want to commit to a whole mandolin, just go get yourself a little hand one. Yeah, I must admit I've never used any of the other attachments other than the normal bla- slicey blade. Yeah. yeah. So, yep, that's my no tip. carrot flowers going on in your house. No, right? absolutely not. Did you um, come prepared, Meg? Yeah, I mean... Hit us with a tip, Meg. Is your tip. Well, I mean, I can either give you a tip that's related to mezcal or just something else. No, go mezcal. Yeah, cool. Keep it on theme. So, because this is something I've been cooking a lot this summer, um, and uh, I've always been an advocate for adding wine to food, pretty much anything. Yeah. Um, But uh, this year I got taught to add a little bit of mezcal to a ceviche recipe, which you don't even really need a recipe. You just need some really good fresh fish. I would advocate for actually... Don't necessarily go the typical lingo snapper um, or something really light. It actually works pretty well with a more meaty mm. fish, something like a kawai. Mm. Um, and as well as the citrus, just add a good slug of mezcal in Ooh, there. Okay. And I tell you what, it is one of the most delicious things that you will yes. have ever eaten. Thank you. Oh, my mouth is watering. Into it. It's really good. Really and I, th- I think that. that's a really good tip as well is um, stop smoking your kahawai. He's more yep. versatile kahawai than you know. Agreed. Do what you like. Uh, Here's your friend. Use them in many ways. My tip this uh, this month is learn to make an omelette. It's really, really, really easy, and it's going to take you places. Um, again, going back to Friday night, uh, back to Duncan's house, I cooked about 40 omelettes. He did. Uh, and they wow. were really, really good. Who rolled up with two trays of eggs? Well, Duncan had <laughs> six had trays of eggs. Of eggs. Oh, so just, just quietly, this is 40 drunk omelettes also. Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> awesome. I was standing so in the middle of the lounge in front of people. I, I never usually flip my omelette. Oh, uh, God. But I was throwing the omelette into the sky <laughs> and it was landing right like, back I in I am loath to give Simon Day any praise ever, but got to say, such good omelettes. It's, very, it's very easy to cheat. Even if you omelet. don't oh, like omelettes, it will win you friends. And I reckon it helped my hangover only being like, Really bad, not really, really bad the next day. Yeah, we learnt to make a 60-second omelette and um, it genuinely tastes a lot better 
than um, your average omelette that you are served in a cafe, I would say. So learn to do it at home and save yourself the money. That butter. Use lots of it. In a hot pan. Has anyone eaten anywhere fun recently? I have. Um, I went to the... Um, it's at Las Vegas on K Road. It's called Asahi Akaidoa. Um, it's an evening of theatre and food. They did it last year, so this is the second year. Um, Who's they? Sorry, um, it's Asahi. So basically they've done a takeover of the um, Las Vegas nightclub, but it's been done with the same group that own... Um, Azabu. Azabu and Abisu and um, Seven. So the head chef from Azabu is there and he and his team create, I think it's 10 dishes and I think it's supposed to be a secret so I'm not going to say too much. But over the course of about two hours you get there, you prepay so you need to book a ticket and I think that everyone should do this before it finishes in July. Um, But you go, you book a ticket, you turn up and they serve you the most incredible um, Asahi drinks. So you start with dark beer and you move on to there are other cocktails as well. Um, with absolutely incredible um, morsels of food, like extreme umami deliciousness. I can't really yeah. explain more than that. But um, while you're eating it, there's people sort of roaming around doing sexy dances. Mm, There's also heavy music. Um, There's smoke machines. There's a light show on the roof. The whole room's quite dark, but it's it's glowing red. And that's all I'm going to say. But it's it's a short-term thing, and I know that the boys from Culprit are heading in to collaborate on the food for the last month or so. So definitely have a look um, online, book a ticket, um, and just remember that it's limited because I think probably the busier it is, the more likely it would be um, to come back next year. I think it's best suited to a big night out with a whole lot of friends that you're going to have fun with, not try and catch up with because it's a noisy situation. It sounds like someone's doing PR well. Me. No, the Asahi. I don't work for them. No, Asahi. It's like someone's actually done a brand sort of motivated event and it's fun and cool. Yeah. I didn't get a media invite, though. They didn't need it. sounded like they didn't need one. I know. Well, she's just given them a bloody... And what what I also find really exciting (laughs) about... I went to the... um, I can't remember how I got invited. I went to the opening night. Did you pay? No. What I find exciting about <laughs> Las Vegas is that's obviously going on, and uh, then you've got Frank Booker and Flamingo Pear uh, playing a two-month residency on Saturday nights, and it actually feels like another step in Auckland's uh, nightlife. My biggest complaint previously about uh, going out in Auckland has been a lack of great places to go dancing regularly yeah this so is agree. like this is like the best disco on tap by my favorite dj every saturday night for two months where and at? at las vegas oh yeah uh, and it's just it's, it's a good sign like it's yeah. it's showing um that we can be better at being at having fun when i was in the room i was thinking this feels like new york you know like i'm getting cooler just by sitting here mm. that's how cool it was oh 
Well, I can see it's your coolness. I thought it was the pregnancy. Thank glow, you. You were wondering why, why I got a bit <laughs> yeah. cooler since you last saw me. Alice, you shouted out my omelette already. Oh, Thank yeah, you. omelette. And then I had a couple of good breakfasts, keeping it on the breakfast theme. One was at Field and Green in Wellington, which was a oh, baked eggs with spicy lentils when I was hungover from the Highball Festival. Which I wrote a story about. You might have seen Wellington is so fucking good. And then when I was hungover again from Friday night, post omelette, I went to Bestie and I had this yum thing, which they said was vegan chorizo. And it was just like spicy, nutty, seedy stuff with like, I got it with a chili fried egg, so it wasn't vegan, obviously. Butterbean mash, uh, chimichurri, Brussels sprouts, just like a weird kind of breakfast plate with flatbread and yum stuff. It was good. That's mine. Me. what have you eaten lately? Do you know what? Um, the, the Probably one of the best things I've eaten recently is super, super simple, actually. In some ways. Um, Madam George on K Road. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't there for dinner specifically at this time. Um, uh, but just having a bit of a walking, kind of eating, drinking around K Road. Um, we popped in there and um, they recommended that we try the Anticucho skewers, which um, essentially like a Peruvian style delicious things grilled on sticks. Um, and the nut, I don't know if it's always this or if it changes, but it was beef heart. Oh, and yeah. it was so delicious. It was maybe like a Did little you say bit it was of chili. Simple, the thing that you had lately. Like, like it was just hard on a stick with like maybe some sort of salt and some citrus and some chili. And it was so good. Like I, yeah, I want to go back and eat it all the time. It the was first time like I ate heart was at your event at um, Cazador. Ah, uh, yeah. And blew my mind. I had no idea it was. I, I expected something that was so rich it would make me gag. Mm. And it, it wasn't. It was so salty and savoury and would eat heart again. Me too. Like, it's not kind of fatty like liver is. It's definitely a bit leaner than that. And um, I don't really eat a lot of meat um, by choice. Um, but saying that I, I don't not eat it and when I, when I choose to, I like to think that eating everything from the beast is a really good thing to do. Totally, so, yeah, yep. this, this was both delicious and, you know, I felt quite good about it. Fitted your <laughs> philosophy. Yep, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I think cool. the Hare and Turtle in New Windsor is the best cafe on the planet. Yeah, I've never been, but I hear very wow. good things. Yeah. It's a big call. No, I know they're famous for their cinnamon... Right? Cinnamon buns, buns and their donuts, and they do... An the ar- best cafe on the planet. They, do an ar- they don't try and do anything other than what they do, and that's yeah. sandwiches, cinnamon buns, and donuts. Awesome. And they are very cool without being too cool at all. Uh, it's very much a community hub. Uh, it's everything a cafe should be and um, no eggs benedict. I think cafes in the burbs are better, especially in Auckland now. Like you just can't be a good cafe in the city. No, you can. I mean, bestie. I just You've got to be more than a good cafe but in the city, I think don't you? Yeah, you have to be. Being a- out, of, like, out of the centre. I was a judge in the Metro Cafe Awards and I went to some ones in the outer burbs, which I wouldn't usually go to. And yeah, they just have nicer vibes. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because their proposition isn't actually that different from a business perspective, apart from the fact that they pay less rent. Mm. So, look, they might have 5% of their revenue to work with, but for some reason they seem to be, like, just filled with love. Cool. I want to go. I might go this weekend. I thought you were meaning I want to go. Like, I want to get (laughs) me out. No, I want to get a conversation. Turtle. But it is getting quite hot in here. It's so hot. Should we open the door? Yeah. I just absolutely. Let's 
Podcast over. We're wrapping up, aren't we? <laughs> we got anything else to say? Nah, this, cool. this, it's done. Hey, Out. I just want to thank Tina. Oh shit, Tina! Before we go, we'd love to thank Tina and our Alice Webblador. Yeah, Alice. Was here for the ride. Alice, Alice produced our first pod. It wasn't thanked then. Yeah. <laughs> Alice, do you get annoyed that Duncan always calls you Alice Webbladell? Everyone calls me that, so. But it's not right. It's oh, Webbladall. Yeah. You're one of those people where people say your first and last name or people mispronounce your no, name? Liddell, Liddell. Not Liddell, but Liddell's the common spelling. Uh, I would not allow it to happen. I would just put my foot down. Alice, would call, Alice would call HR. I would call it. I would literally call it. <laughs> I'm never worried when people don't get my name right. Yeah. How do you mispronounce oh, Sophie Gilmore? Can't. Oh, people spell it wrong a lot. Okay. But oh, I, yeah, do, I couldn't really they? care less. Yeah. My in-laws really do care because it's Kathy with an I-E and well, Glenn with two N's. Oh, well, you're just like, and you've got a weird a f- spelling. And I had a friend do the um, placements at our wedding for where people were sitting. And the only two names they got wrong were my in-laws. Oh, that's so good. Awkward. Oh. Mm, not Shout ideal. Shout out Kathy and Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> good on you. Thanks so much, Meg. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Thanks, Meg. Lovely to have you. Thanks, Meg. Great to have you. to be here. Come back every time. <laughs> She's off to Canada. <laughs> have fun. Oh, have fun. Hi, Kitty. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.